The What Are We Doing podcast and the Aquatic Biosphere Project acknowledges that we are located on Treaty 6 territory and respects the histories, languages, and cultures of First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and all First Peoples of Canada, whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Welcome to today's Deep Dive episode. Today, we're going to be learning all about how wildfires impact our water systems, how it can affect what goes into our water, how much erosion is happening on the landscape, and when we actually get our water, if we have really high amounts in the spring and then low in the summer. It never occurred to me how tightly water and wildfire were linked together. So I was so excited to speak with Dr. Kevin Bladen from Oregon State University, as he has been researching this for a very long time and knows a lot about it. So sit back, relax, and get ready to learn a little bit more about how wildfire impacts our water systems. Air. Air. Bunny. G. Moana. Omi. Tubi. Agua. Low. Enxio. Nihu. Nei. Nui. Roda. Miri. Echi. Chai. Shui. Maji. Wai. Nero. Aqua. Roda. Water. We doing. And how can we do better? Your one-stop shop for everything water-related, from discussing water, its use, and the organisms that depend on it. For all the global issues that you really never knew all had to do with water. I'm your host, David Evans, from the Aquatic Biosphere Project, and I just want to ask you something. What are we doing, and how can we do better? Hi, and welcome to another Deep Dive episode. I'm so excited. Today, we're going to be learning all about wildfire and how that actually can impact water systems throughout our continent, throughout the world, and and really how wildfire plays a role in water resources and, and how it could potentially affect the water that's coming out of your tap. So, Kevin, do you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about uh, the focus of your research? Sure. Thanks for having me, first of all. Great to be part of this podcast. Uh, My name is Kevin Bladen. I am an associate professor of forest hydrology at Oregon State University. I know a lot of your audience is going to be in Alberta. And why would you talk to somebody from Oregon State? Well, I'm I'm an Alberta boy. (laughs) I was born and and raised in in Sherwood Park and and, Went to the University of Alberta. I left to the British Columbia for some years and came back and, and spent a lot of time. And, and so I'm very familiar with, with Alberta and done a lot of research there. I uh, feel very fortunate to have landed in the Pacific Northwest and to continue my research. And so in terms of my research, um, my research program is, is focused on understanding how um, forest disturbances, things like forest harvesting or pest outbreaks or pathogens, and most importantly, wildfires affect a full range of water values from water quantity to water quality to aquatic um, ecology, as well as downstream community drinking water. 
So cool. Just to give an idea of why we're, we're talking about this, from my perspective, it, it seems that every year there's more and more news about wildfires and these terrifying videos of, of people escaping from fires throughout Canada and the United States. I mean, we're very familiar in Alberta, definitely with Slave Lake and with Fort McMurray more recently. So just to get us started, wildfires seem to be getting bigger and badder every summer. Are wildfires actually getting worse? Um. <laughs> that's that's not as simple of a question as 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 it might seem. Um, I guess my first caveat: I'm I'm not a wildfire scientist, but certainly because wildfire is such an important part of my research, I'm I'm very familiar with with the, the that area of research. Um, I think the simple part of that question is we we are seeing evidence that our our fire seasons are getting longer. Uh, that we're seeing an increase in in area burned um, over the last several decades from from the previous few decades, and then the fires that are burning, we're seeing those burn at greater severity. Um, so, in in other words, um, you know, in in a lot of regions, we might see the same number of fires, but if they burn, they're they're burning hotter and they're burning up more organic matter, and they're creating um, greater and longer lasting impacts um, that, than they had. Um, there's a lot of variability though in that. And that, that's the difficult part of, of the question. And I think what, what complicates this is uh, we've had really rapid population growth, po- um, um, development that's moved into forests uh, over the last several decades. And then you combine that with the way we've managed forests because we're in the forest, we wanna protect that infrastructure. And so uh, as a result, that's kind of set us up to where we are in a, a conditions where we're getting some of these larger fires and, and, and that, that, that can be, it, it really muddles things. I think if we look back in, in the 1800s and, and 1900s, there was actually a lot of fire on the landscape. And we, uh, we now just suppress that fire and it's kind of set us up for uh, some larger, more catastrophic fires, and and with that infrastructure there in in place, and um, that's really contributed to to some of the issues. Yeah, it's basically like if you just kept throwing a stick onto a pile every year, and then usually it would burn every five years. But if you didn't let it burn for ten, fifteen years, you're going to have a big fire once it actually lights. That's right. Yeah, and I think I think the key to that is that it's not simple, and I would say that in. You know, folks, folks point the finger when they, they hear that often that, well, we just need to manage the forest um, differently. And yeah, that's part of the equation. But certainly climate change, I think it just seems to be the master control knob right now. And it is leading to hotter, drier conditions and more fires. But there's there are things that we can do uh, to, to help with the, the types of fires we're seeing. Yeah, I'm so curious about what are some of the main impacts that wildfires can have on our water security. Yeah, yeah, I'm so glad you're here that we're having a chance to talk about this. And you know, I think with with fires and the issue with smoke, uh, that that gets people's attention, right? And people are concerned about fires. And we here in the Pacific Northwest this past year, we had a couple of weeks where we were trapped in our homes, and you know taping up around our doors to keep the smoke out and and that all that fire is gone and the smoke is gone and to a lot of people 
they, their brains have turned off and go, okay, all the problems are over. Well, as a, as a hydrologist and thinking about water, this is when all of our problems are starting. And, and those problems can be really long lasting, longer than people, I think, know. You know we, we, we may have issues after large wildfires that persist for decades. Um, so um, what are they? I mean, there's, there's so wow. many that we could talk about. Um, this is just for, first, I guess, the, the first thing that comes to mind is just simply water supply itself, uh, you know, the, the amounts of water. You, you remove the forest canopy, you burn that forest canopy. Well, now those, those trees themselves are, are not transpiring or using, using water. Also, when, when it rains or snows, that it doesn't fall on the canopy any longer. It hits the forest floor. And so you got more water hitting the forest floor. The forest floor has also changed and burned because of the organic matter. And so that's going to deliver more water more often, more rapidly into our streams. Those peak flows that we might see or the flooding events, um, those can uh, lead to increases in erosion and movement of a whole bunch of constituents that we could talk about downstream. Um, also, a bunch of our infrastructure downstream is all engineered uh, based on, say, historical flood events. And all of that can, can create a whole bunch of issues as well that are, are, are really expensive. Um, timing of flow is, is something else in terms of water uh, availability, something pe people don't think about. So communities that rely on, say, reservoirs to hold back water, water managers, they, they're kind of thinking about, wait, when do I hold back water? When do I release water for aquatic ecology? Wildfire can increase the timing of the delivery of that water by a couple of weeks. It really throws um, our water managers for a bit of a loop. Wow. And then the one other thing I'll add to this in terms of the water supply, and then I'll pause and, and maybe we could talk about that. And, and certainly we'll want to talk about the water quality issues. But one other thing that's really emerging right now and has got people concerned and will be something to, that we really need to do some research. The, we've done research on harvesting sites where we have long-term data we're 50, 60 years after forest harvesting. There's very few of those sites that we have that kind of data. But in those sites that we have 50, 60 years after forest harvesting, what we've been able to see and illustrate is that those younger trees, 50, 60-year-old versus the 200-year-old tree, is are much more vigorous in their water use. And that has led to low flow deficits in the summer. So when our fish need water in the stream, the trees are using far more water, those younger trees, leading to less water in the streams with implications for aquatic ecology. Now, you think about a, a large catastrophic wildfire that burns 20% of an entire basin. That's a massive turnover in vegetation and, mm -hmm. and potential long-term implications for water supply. That's so fascinating. So they're using more water and it, it sounds like we don't currently know why, but yeah, that, that just having that large of an area that suddenly requires that much more mm -hmm. water and that it's, it's either getting sent shunted off the land very early on and it's not able to be absorbed by those land masses. If it's, if it's a fresh, fresh uh, burn event uh, or, or they're actually going to require more water. So yeah, it just seems like instead of having the 
the tap on at a medium speed all the time, it's either very low flow or it's very high flow for the first little bit. Right. Yeah. I think as trees age, they get a little more efficient in their water use. And so, and they have greater control of their stomates, which are just the, the openings on their leaves that allow carbon dioxide in for them to grow, but at the same time, water leaves out, out of, out of those openings. And they just get a little more efficient at fixing that carbon and, and losing less water as they age. Those younger trees, they're just, it is growing vigorously and because of that using a lot more water. So you're thinking about these <laughs> large scale areas that burn and flipping them over to younger, more vigorous trees, that has potential implications for, for long-term water supply for sure. Um, and one other thing I do want to talk about is we've talked a lot about uh, water supply, but other things in terms of wildfire effects on, on water security are certainly um, the things that probably come to most people's minds that we haven't talked about yet, which are you know erosion, uh, movement of sediment uh, downstream. You know, the classic example of that is the the 2002 Hayman fire in, in Colorado, where the the year after that fire, uh, the precipitation events moved uh, enough sediment to fill their reservoir to uh, the size of a football field. 61 meters deep whoa so there's a lot of sediment and for them to dredge that and pull that sediment out of that reservoir to be able to get that capacity back that cost them about 30 million dollars in in taxpayer money so sediment obviously a key thing is we've lost all that vegetation to hold things together um, the vegetation to stop the precip from hitting that forest floor with with a lot of energy and uh, that's going to lead to the, those erosive events. And then with that, we're going to see movement of things like nitrogen and phosphorus and carbon, sort of the building blocks of our aquatic ecosystems um, moving into those systems and really changing our aquatic ecology, as well as other constituents of concern like, like heavy metals moving into, um, into our stream. So a lot, lots going on after, after wildfires that can impact our, our water security. All right, everyone, buckle up. It seems like this is going to be a lot of long episode because we have so many different things to talk about here. <laughs> this is fascinating. Everything from heavy metals to carbon, phosphorus, nitrogen. And I, I come from a biology background, so I'm familiar with the phosphorus and nitrogen and those kind of effect on aquatic ecosystems. Do you mind just speaking a little bit more about what those effects are for the listeners? And especially when it comes to heavy metals, does, is that a concern for drinking water as well? Yeah, I think, uh, well, um, yeah, let's start with aquatic ecosystems. Certainly, you know, the, there's really different ways that these constituents can move. Things like nitrogen and, and some of the carbon uh, tend to be much more soluble so that they'll dissolve in water. And so with, as we have water moving um, through our systems more rapidly, going to move more nitrogen into the, into the system. Other constituents, like a lot of our metals and phosphorus, they tend to sort of stick or adsorb to the face of, of sediment. So as long as we have erosion and sediment moving into the, the streams, they're going to bring those other constituents along for the ride. And then once in the system, mm -hmm. yeah, they can, they can persist in there and propagate and move downstream. Every year as we have high flow events, the spring floods, they're going to move more of that downstream and ultimately um, could 
could hit the intake of, of some of our community drinking water utilities. But those those constituents, the, the carbon and nitrogen and, and phosphorus, those building blocks, like I say, they they can lead to increases in primary productivity. So more algae may start to grow in systems where we didn't see it. And, and that algae can provide um, food opportunities for our invertebrates, uh, things like um, true flies or um, mayflies, stoneflies, caddisflies. And, and we can see shifts in that aquatic ecology. The communities may shift. We may see increases in abundance of invertebrates. And then with that, there can be knock-on effects where we see, well, more invertebrates for our fish. Our fish, in some instances, we've seen them respond positively to some wildfires, that they may increase in their growth rates because of that increase in availability of food. The, the, one, the one caveat to that is that with all of our systems, we know there is like a tipping point that you, if you push it too far, well, all those positive um, outcomes that we want can actually go away. And so after wildfires, if we have continued inputs of nitrogen, phosphorus, carbon into the system, we get a lot of primary productivity. What can happen is our dissolved oxygen concentrations can start to tank and and that can lead to loss of habitat for, for fish and, and all those positive things go away, unfortunately. So that's, a you know, it's kind of really important in thinking about how we manage after wildfires and trying to help them get on their way to recovery. Because a little bit of those things in the system is great. Too much is, can be certainly problematic. Um, in terms of those mm-hmm. things as they hit our, our utilities and communities, really, I, I, I don't have a lot of concerns. I think it, for a lot of years, I might have had concerns as somebody in the, in the public, but I've been very fortunate to work with a uh, uh, a colleague from the University of Waterloo, Monica Melko, for a lot of years, who's a drinking water treatment engineer and a real expert in in this that field. And um, what I've learned from her is that utilities are really robust. Um, they 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 are constantly monitoring for these these constituents, and as part of the regulations, they've got to remove all of those heavy metals. And we hear these scary terms mercury and arsenic and aluminum it's like oh my gosh that's in our water well um i I don't have a lot of concerns for our health associated with those in terms of of wildfire i think our our utilities are quite effective and they're they're concerned we've had massive fires here this year um, and i know working with the utilities in the pacific northwest and i know the same from my experience in alberta they're, they're constantly taking samples of that water and looking for those constituents and making sure they're, they're removed from, from the water and the water is safe to drink. Well, that's music to my ears. It's nice to know that those are being actively searched for and, and treated properly. So these are concerns maybe if you aren't drinking treated water from a utility system or something like that. But most people are, are drinking utility water or from a deep well or something like that. So they're not as large of a concern. So most of the water in Alberta it comes from the mountains and is, as snow melts. So you touched a little bit on this, but I, I was hoping just to, to circle back. Um, and how is the snow affected by forests that have been burnt? Yes, uh, certainly snow and, and that snowpack is such a critical component of the, the water supply, uh, both for upstream and, and downstream. And that, you know, wildfires that 
obviously have a, a profound impact on on the the snow accumulation and snow melt. So when when we burn the, a, a forest, you know, we lose a lot of that canopy. A lot of the trees remain standing if we don't salvage log, but a lot of that canopy is lost. Then when we have precipitation events, snow snow events. Uh, we can lose anywhere from 25 to 30 percent of that snow back to the atmosphere. It lands on and is held in the branches of the canopy and it's something called interception loss and it evaporates back up into the atmosphere. Well, you remove that canopy. Now that's an additional 20 to 35 percent mm. of water as snow that accumulates um, on the forest floor. Now, not all that water gets translated into the stream because the the trees themselves end up being darker because they've burned and they'll often, um, they will uh, release or reflect radiation, either um, reflecting shortwave radiation from the sun or, or releasing longwave radiation that they've absorbed um, to that snowpack and can speed the melt. And, and as we get into the spring and the melt season, just like with the snow not being intercepted, well, the radiation isn't being intercepted. And so there's far more direct radiation from the sun mm. hitting that, that snowpack. And so while we may see increases in snow accumulation, it tends to melt much more rapidly. And that's what contributes to and, and can lead to those increases in flood events or peak flow events in, in the spring. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. So as as you kind of mentioned before, a lot of the snow will actually what was the term again uh, that it's it's actually transpired into the into the atmosphere. Yeah, and so the tra- transpiration is just water used by trees. So, um, so what what this is is interception, which is just a form of of evaporation of of the snow. Um, we what we call um, sublimation is the is the official official textbook term is in it's just evaporation of snow directly going from a, a solid phase to to a gas up into the atmosphere yes okay perfect i had never considered of no directly uh being evaporated or turning into into gases from yeah. from snow that's yeah the sublimation interesting interesting so I'm curious, as someone who who hasn't spent that much time along areas uh, along the coast and and seen fires there, but I, I know that there are many fires that happen along, especially throughout the United States along coastlines. A lot of fires are fought using water and water bombers. Are there ever instances where where we use ocean water to actually fight forest fires? And does that have any effects on on the land, especially in other water systems? If we're suddenly dropping seawater onto onto the land? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. And uh, our oceans are so amazing. We've got these massive water bodies that in so many ways, because of that salt, are are unusable to us. <laughs> you know, um, they're, they're just they're amazing. <laughs> um, I've actually never heard of anyone using seawater, ocean water for uh, fire suppression. And the reason why actually isn't because of the the salt in this case, uh, but it's actually because of a safety issue and and the the swells. So you think about those bombers or helicopters and what how they're having to collect that water. Um, our ocean systems, you know, they fluctuate vertically quite a bit and, and really creates a safety issue for collection of, of that water. Um, and so 
you know, that's not something that I'm, I'm aware of anybody doing. But what it does is by asking that question, it really raises something in my mind that, that um, I, I hadn't thought of until just recently and was having a, a conversation with another colleague and, and it came to my attention was, that, oh, of course we do this. Um, it's really interesting that uh, we have folks in our government agencies who are actively identifying those different potential sources of water that we have for fighting fires and and in preparation ahead of time, knowing what sources are actually usable. And so we might look around and, well, why aren't all of our lakes usable? Well, think about some of the other issues we have right now around uh, in many of our lakes. We have invasive species. We have harmful algal blooms. We And we don't want to be scooping that kind of water up and spreading um, invasive species around right. that we hadn't thought of. So actually we, we, we thoughtfully spend the time to identify what sources are actually usable uh, for fighting fires. And, and those are pre-identified um, for, for fire suppression efforts. That's fascinating. Yeah. Invasive species is, is a huge issue. And I'd never thought of that. I, it reminds me of the famous Darwin Award of the scuba diver who was found in the middle of a, a burnt forest and who had been uh, who had been scooped up. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but uh, it reminds me of. I've also heard that. I was hoping that you could expand maybe a little bit about the work that your lab is actually doing and how your team goes out to these areas to monitor hydrology in response to different forest management techniques or impacts to forests. And what are kind of some of the main questions that you're really looking to answer? Uh, for me, I'm, I have a, a lot of interests. Um, I'm, I have some, some colleagues who they, they'll pick one slice of the, the world and really focus in on that. And for myself, I'm, I'm interested in so many things. And, and so we're people in my group, we, we do research from the, the very small um, plot scale to just focusing on it on a hill slope to catchment scale. And I've worked with other folks at a, at a regional um, provincial or state level scale, all the way up to, um, you know, um, continental and a global scale. And so all of those require different techniques and, and we're asking all kinds of different questions about, well, how, how do fires affect um, our, our water availability, the, the water quantity, the aquatic ecology linkages are, are just so important and, and how are our fisheries responding as, as well as, as drinking water treatment. And with all of that, we're using really varied techniques from the, the, the dirtiest, simplest techniques of just simply using a shovel and Ziploc bags and collecting you know, soil samples or, or going and you know, standing in the streams and scooping up water. And then we're taking those back to the lab and doing more detailed analyses to um, having very sophisticated instrumentation now that um, really didn't exist until the last several of several years that we can put instruments out in the stream to measure Things like carbon and stream temperature and, and the, the pH or acidity of the water and the, the conductivity, which tells you how, how many of our cations and anions might, might be in, in, in the water. We have all these really cool instruments now that we can put in our streams and they can take measurements for us in, in, in real time. 
and have those uploaded to a system where you can you know, sit at home and nerd out and look at look at your data coming in and um, you know we're all the way from that to now using a lot of the the satellite data that we have and there's so many great satellite products that allow us to scale these things up that we've been on the ground and digging with our shovel at that fine scale but then cool to back it out and look at look at it from a much larger scale and um, it's a really exciting time to be um, a scientist I'll tell you <laughs> it sounds like your team is is banding out from the very small to be able to look at the very large yeah. and and uh yeah it sounds like a, a very diverse diverse field i think that's that's the way to go i i i mean there there's definitely benefits to looking at one thing in one slice of it but it's nice to take a a larger view i i find of of these kind of questions yeah. So I've experienced a lot working in the woods, and I've learned quite a bit about forestry practices. Um, I've often heard of of logging or forestry practices being considered a way to mimic fire on a landscape. So I'm curious, how does a logged area compare to something that's burnt, and how does that come across within the actual hydrology and the water data? Yeah, (laughs) that's a difficult one. I think, you know, I think our uh, you know, managers are are trying to be more thoughtful in their approach than than we were historically um, in in the 1960s, 1970s, and and we really made great progress. And and um, the the forest management today is not our our old school forest management. And and for the most part, well well well, managers I think w- would agree that yeah, we we can continue to improve. We can continue to do things better. Uh, when we do look back over our shoulder, we we have really moved the needle in terms of management and, and protection of of water. Um, in terms of that, thinking about well, uh, designing our cut blocks and, and designing management to mimic um, mimic natural disturbances like fire, I th- I, th- I think that that that's a great idea. And I think that, you know, I, I applaud folks for attempting that. And, and I think if we're going to manage to do it thoughtfully like that certainly makes sense, but uh, there, there's a lot of differences between those disturbances in, in, in reality. You know, you think about uh, uh, right now in terms of scale uh, in Alberta, where, where you are, you have limits on cut block sizes. We have limits on cut block sizes in the Pacific Northwest as well now. And so in Alberta, I think the cut block size limits are, you can correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but I, I believe that the, the cut block size limits are something like 24 hectare patches um, if you're cutting something like a spruce forest up to, I think, 32 hectares in, in size. We had wildfires this year in the Pacific Northwest, um, five of them that exceeded, you know, 4,000 square kilometers. It's like the, 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 just the scale of yeah. that. They're, they're totally different um, beasts in, in that way. The, the other thing associated with that, you think about, okay, um, forest harvesting. Um, they're coming in either with a person on the ground cutting those trees down, skidding them on um, to some landing with a piece of equipment, or they're using cables to to drag those logs to to a landing. 
And they're doing so in a really thoughtful way now, more so than they did in the past. They're sort of planning out those pathways and really limiting their impact on the on the forest floor. A fire doesn't care. It's, you know, it's burning right up to the stream edge. There's no riparian areas left behind. <laughs> it's it's burning all of the organic matter um, um, in on top of that that soil surface and really changes how soils hold water and and deliver water to streams. And so, you know, aspects of forest harvesting in terms of that leaving some of a, a like a mosaic and, and patchiness, th- that is what mimics fire. The, the scale and the, the types of impacts, where those impacts um, um, are able to spread to in terms of a riparian area or not riparian area, they're very, very different things. And so I'm, I'm glad we're not mimicking fire with, with our harvesting in terms of scale. <laughs> yeah, that's a huge, huge area to all completely log. So thank goodness we're, we're not doing that at that scale, uh, mimicking fire at that scale. And I remember being really surprised when I first learned that there was fires that were like 500,000 hectares large. Like that is an enormous area. And a lot of the times it's because it's in these places that don't have much population. So you don't actually hear it. It doesn't get into the news cycle that much. But as we go further south in Alberta and then into the States, then the population density just increases so much. And, and then we have so many issues with fire and humans on the landscape. And, and that kind of leads me into many people might say, well, these wildfires, they're a problem. We just need to control them. We need to make them stop. Is there anything beneficial to wildfires? That's a really important question. And the simple answer is yes. um, And I I think it's important that that folks hear that. Um, I think we've gotten used to, like you say, the sensationalism earlier you talked about, the photos that we may see, the images of, from catastrophic wildfires and, and the videos of people fleeing their homes. And we really frame fire as bad. And, and certainly there's some negative in, in, um, aspects of wildfire. But um, fire is a natural disturbance. It's, it's been uh, uh, on our, our landscapes and helping to shape our landscapes for uh, millennia and well before we were here. And we've really um, influenced that, that fire regime in, in, in a lot of ways. And I think we, we need, it's really critical for us to actually think about these things and think about the positive benefits of fire. You know, certainly we have a lot of species, for example, that are adapted to fire and actually need fire to come through. You know, certain pines have, have serotonous cones and, the, and that serotony of the cone is something that needs heat from fire to open, to release the seeds, uh, to, to continue to produce new trees. And, and just that, you know, that thinking about that, we, we need fire on our landscape. Um, as we've talked about before, the, the, the release of, or fire can release a lot of beneficial nutrients, those key building blocks for our systems. Um, nitrogen, phosphorus, carbon, Yes, with too much of it can be a problem, but those little boosts of, of those nutrients into our system can really have positive outcomes for our, our aquatic ecosystems. And I've actually seen a lot of systems around where we go out and 
they've retained all of the riparian vegetation and you walk in and it's this dense, dark forest and there's no light getting to the stream. You start picking up rocks and looking at the, the stream bed and there's there's nothing. There's nothing growing there. There's no primary productivity. There's no invertebrates. It's not suitable fish habitat. So just leaving things alone and, and you know, snuffing out all these fires because we think fire is bad, uh, you know, in some ways it, it's, it's not a good thing. We, we need to become comfortable with, with fire. Um, we, we, we certainly don't want the large catastrophic fires, but we need to be comfortable with, with um, those fires on the shoulders of the season and really see the, the benefits. And one other thing which goes to your previous question about sort of fire mimicking uh, forest harvesting. And, and one of the key ways that it does mimic is, is that mosaic, as I mentioned, that you have areas that are burned, areas are unburned, areas disturbed, areas undisturbed. I have a colleague here, Meg Krawchuk, who is also at Oregon State, who also is from Alberta, and went to the University of Alberta, worked with Mike Flanagan at, at the University of <laughs> Alberta. So a lot of connections um, here. But yeah. uh, Meg focuses on looking at these, the patches that survive wildfires. Rather than focusing after fires on the burned areas, she focuses on the areas that don't burn. And what's unique about those? And they really create a lot of um, unique habitat because of what they're surrounded by and what they represent and so there, there's so many ways that that wildfires are, are beneficial we, we we just we just need to get comfortable with that yep that's in we just need to get comfortable with that uh, just as an aside about the patchiness uh, i've i've done a lot of surveying work within the the boundaries of the fort mcmurray fire and that was an enormous fire as well yeah but it was a very patchy fire as well. So we had monitoring units set up for mammals and birds, so trail cameras and and <laughs> a- autonomous recording units. And we had, oh, how many did we have? We had, I think, about 100 units set up, uh, a different spacing throughout different areas of that fire. And we only lost seven units um, <laughs> because the the fire was so patchy and it just happened to fall in into the, the patches yeah. that survived the fire. And it, it was pretty incredible to us. I came across one of the cameras that was that I had picked up myself in one of the uh, the little areas that actually faced the burn, and there was images of the fire going up the trees in front of the trail wow. camera, cool. and the trail camera survived, which was incredible. So, if if people are concerned about impacts of wildfire and how this affects water on the landscape, how can people help, or are there ways to, for people to get involved in protection or act mitigating these effects? Yeah, I think I think most locations um, in in the West, in particular, I think in the West we seem to be very connected to. Um, our place. And um, certainly I know in Alberta and in British Columbia and down into you know, Washington State, Oregon, uh, there's lots of watershed stewardship groups you know, in Alberta. You, uh, some really good ones, the Athabasca Watershed Council and Bow, Bow River Basin Council, North Saskatchewan River Basin Council. And historically, all of those have been interested, have been concerned with wildfire effects on 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 water. I know when I was there working on um, with colleagues on fires that occurred on the east slopes of the, the Rocky Mountains in, in 2003, that the years after that we had collected data, 
most of those councils ha- had us in for uh, to provide talks and provide information. And, and I, so I think that that's a great place to start for a lot of folks to, to really get involved in their area. Um, increasingly, I think there's also opportunities if people are, are into it and looking for opportunities, lots of citizen science opportunities. There's lots of um, different apps out there now that um, I think it helps people feel that connection. And so every time you go on your favorite walk, you can sort of log that in terms of a, a water level or, you know, is there actually water in the stream or not? And sort of linking that to you know, in areas that have burned. I, I think areas that are burned um, in, in that way, I think a lot of people tend to shy away from them. Mm-hmm. You know, they know that, oh, if my favorite trail was someplace that burned, I can't go back there. I don't want to go back there. But actually, it's uh, you know, walking through some of those areas and, and continuing to go back to your favorite trail, even though it's burned, um, I, I think is is a really cool experience. And you see all these lovely flowers that start to emerge after fire and that are very unique to that time and you'll never see them again and you know seeing the forest spring back to life i think is uh is a really cool thing and and so you know just go you know not not shying away i know that a lot of communities lose out on sort of that recreational income when areas burn near them and people don't want to go to those areas, but I, I would, I would, I would flip that around and, and say, you know, if you haven't done that, you should. Um, once, once it's safe, obviously the fires are out and we're in, in into the next season. You know, visiting those areas is is a lot of fun. I would definitely agree with that. I think a lot of people perceive it just as being kind of a, a moonscape after a fire. There should be nothing left, but there, there's actually a lot left standing, yeah. and it's it's a very it's a it's, it feels very different. But it's it's a very interesting experience to take someone who has never experienced that into one of those areas. I I, yeah. I think it's I think it's very cool. And, and well, yeah. Well, there's an aspect that's a little a little sad and unfortunate. Um, it's also really eye-opening. There are things where, you know, you walk through a burned area and you see all these remains of unfortunate animals that, that didn't escape the fire. But it's in some ways, it's like, wow, there was a lot of life here. And that life bounces back. And a lot of the, the animals escape that and then they come back and, and re-populate re, um, and colonize. But to be able to go through and walk through those areas and see some of that is, um, is a re- really cool experience. Definitely. So uh, for anyone who's listening to this podcast and they just are so fascinated, they want to learn more about this, where can people find out more about the research that uh, your team is doing? Uh, Well, podcasts like this don't hurt. Uh, Thanks for having me. Um, (laughs) To be honest, as as a scientist, we so much of our focus is on publishing papers in peer-reviewed literature, and, and a lot of that isn't accessible to the, the general public, unfortunately. And I've really learned that podcasts and blogs and Twitter, most of the folks that, that um, I do science with are on Twitter and, and or have blogs. And, and of course, obviously, you know, searching, searching for this on, on the web and you'll find some, some cool news web pages. Uh, um, I think those are some great ways to communicate and interact with interested members of the public on, on these sorts of things. And so I think 
you know, that's a starting point for folks. And hey, if they, they stumble across my, my web page, what they're going to find is perhaps some of the really nerdy science. And if they want to get their nerd fix on, it's, it's all there too. And, and if you want to dig deeper, but I think <laughs> just, just general searches is, is a great way to go on the internet and listening to podcasts like this. Awesome. So do you mind just sharing the website so people can find it and maybe even your Twitter handle <laughs> so people can interact <laughs> with you on there too? Yeah, my, my Twitter handle is um, at H2O Scientist. Um, so at, at, at Water Scientist. Um, the, the, the lab website, because it's the you know, forest, forest eco, eco hydrology and watershed science lab, it's at uh, fuse, F E W S, fuse.forestry.oregonstate.edu. Awesome. Well, everyone, definitely go and uh, and check check out the website. And if you're on Twitter, let us know that you actually heard this this episode and and that you have, that you enjoyed it and and what you thought. So, thank you so much, uh, Kevin, for taking the time to speak with me. I really enjoyed our talk. I, I feel like I learned a lot, and uh, I think our our listeners will really enjoy it. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you as well. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning into today's episode all about wildfire and water. And thanks also to Kevin Bladen for taking the time to speak with us for this episode. I really appreciate it. And it was a great conversation. Thanks again. If you want to get involved in how your watershed is managed, I'll leave a link to all of the different watershed councils in Alberta down in the show notes because there's some really fantastic work that's going on by all of these different regional councils. So be sure to go check that out and find which one is closest to you. Also, there will be a link in the show notes to Kevin's lab, the Fuse Lab, and all of the work that they're doing on wildfire and its impacts on water systems. I'm the host and producer, David Evans, and I would just like to thank the rest of the team from the Aquatic Biosphere Project, specifically to Paula Polman, Sophie Severa, Anna Bettini. Thanks for all of your help. To learn more about the Aquatic Biosphere Project and what we're doing here in Alberta, telling the story of water, check us out at aquaticbiosphere.ca. And if you have any questions or comments about the show, we'd love to hear them. Email us at conservation at aquaticbiosphere.ca. Org. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave us a review. It really helps us out. Get excited for next week's episode as we talk about the future of food. We're going to examine some different farming techniques that are revolutionizing how we interact with water and can use it to produce food. You'll hear from the team from Pontus Proteins, an aquaponics company out of Vancouver. And you'll also hear from Mike Williamson from Cascadia Seaweed on how seaweed is changing the game when it comes to seafood. Tune in, you won't want to miss it. Thanks, and it's been a splash. 